You're listening to the Helpful NPCs podcast. We offer ideas to make your tabletop role-playing games even better. The Helpful NPCs podcast is not safe for work. Our immaturity is matched only by our vulgarity. You can check us out at helpfulnpcs.com or contact us at info at helpfulnpcs.com. Tired of tieflings? Done with dwarves? Today's podcast, we're going to go over role-playing games that we think you should try when you're ready for a break from Dungeons & Dragons. We have Jacob back with us since he was gone last week. Hey. Hey. And of course, as usual, the Robin to my Batman, Tom, is sitting across the table from me. In spandex. I prefer to think of myself as the gay Joker. So the Joker? <laughs> I'm not Harley Quinn, bitch. <laughs> No, 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 the joke was there was a joker to your Batman idiot. So anyway. Because they're in love, but like, you know. What fan fiction have you been reading? No yeah. one thinks you're, no <laughs> one thinks that's funny. Anyway, so the first role-playing game we're going to discuss today is Dread. Dread is a horror role-playing game that uses a Jenga tower for its action resolution rather than Dice. The novelty. The reason that the Jenga Tower is so extremely effective is that as you play, you can see more and more poles and the tower gets shakier and shakier. And in a traditional game of Dread, when the tower is knocked over, something terrible will then happen. Now, at a convention, at most of the convention games that I've played, uh, somebody using the uh, doing a poll who knocks the tower over actually dies. But I've seen people play that at conventions and I will sign up for it anytime. So if you're listening, you're going to a game convention, you're not sure what to play. I 100% recommend playing Dread. Yeah, I really like the tension increasing throughout each of the polls in the Jenga tower. Like, obviously, you're going to make your first polls in a normal, like longer game. It creates like... Build up and release of tension, which is great for horror storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it should be said, every game of Dread I've ever played, you start with a kind of questionnaire about your character. But it's a relatively simple questionnaire. You're not going through and statting up strength and dexterity. And there aren't character classes. And you're not getting yourself like special powers that you have to look for. None of that stuff that you have in Dungeons and Dragons. It's a very simple game. And it's largely about the story. But we absolutely love it. Yes. And the mere description of the build up and release intention does not quite do it justice compared to when you're sitting at the table watching this wobbly tower like shift back and forth and everyone's like terrified. They push their chairs like six inches back from the table and then the GM is like, you have to make a pull. And then you're like searching you're like circling the table like a great white shark you circling its prey like, oh no, oh, no yeah. not that one looking for the most the weakest spot where you can most easily you know finagle a little brick loose and as the game goes i should say it's not six inches baby people are across the room from this table on the off chance that they might bump it and kill their character or even breathe on it yeah it's absolutely thrilling for a horror game i don't know that i would ever want to run a really long-term game of dread like i don't think that's gonna be my weekly game 
It's great for one shots, though. But for one shots, yeah. it's fantastic, especially because you can kill the characters right off. So the second game we're going to talk about is Urban Shadows. Now, I've never actually played Urban Shadows, but I watched a couple videos of it. That is Jake's big thing because Jake has run it for some time. The basis uh, or the premise of Urban Shadows is that it's an urban fantasy game. Some examples of urban fantasy would be the Dresden Files, the Iron Druid Chronicles, you could even stretch it a little bit and um, take it to shows like Lost Girl. Uh, even Supernatural has some elements of urban How fantasy. about Twilight, Jacob? How well could I run Twilight in Urban Shadows? You could very easily run Twilight in Urban Shadows, yes. Uh, what do you play in Urban Shadows? Like, what kinds of characters do you play? Um, so there's four factions. There's Night, which includes things like vampires, werewolves. There's Power which includes the uh, mages and also the oracles, which who can see the future. Okay. Um, there's wild, which has the fairies and also uh, something called the tainted, which is basically you sold your soul to a demon Lord in exchange for power. Oh shit. And then you have uh, mortality, which includes things like um, the aware who are kind of like investigators. Um, there's also hunters which are very focused on killing all of the three other factions uh, and the veterans who are quote unquote too old for this shit. So if I wanted to introduce my vampire werewolf uh, girl with no redeeming values romance to the game, I would probably want to use the mortals faction. Yes, she would probably be an aware. All right. But you can change factions and under certain circumstances. So when he can't resist himself any longer, your vampire decides to make the girl a vamp. That can't happen. Now, what about the half vampire, half werewolf baby or whatever the fuck it was? You can get out of my game then. All right. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, the, the strengths of Urban Shadows are um, uh, the politics and the interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a mechanic that's designed to kind of foster that and designed to make those the center of the story. And it's called the debt mechanic. So they can be debts with... Uh, the characters being played by the other players. They can be debts with NPCs that you literally make up uh, in the first session. <clears throat> and those debts are leverage that you can use to get NPCs to do things for you, to give you bonuses on your actions, to force other players or try to force other players to do things to your advantage. So as the game goes on, is the idea that you're trading in debts and then accumulating new debts with the other players? And because you said it's a really political game. Yep. I have two questions. The first is, what is the goal of the individual player characters? Are they trying to advance their factions? Yeah, I mean, it's very open-ended. Um and it kind of depends on how how you set up the city. Some, like a game I've played, everything was very structured, so there were like organizations. But you could play a game where every vampire is just a loner, right? There is no like vampire culture. Okay, so my understanding, if I'm giving the backstory correctly, this is based on, this is a Powered by the Apocalypse game, correct? It is. So for people that have never heard of this, Powered by the Apocalypse means it uses the same sort of basic game system as a game called apocalypse world and that game was very uh scene based and story based so what we mean by a story based game is 
the time does not go in a sort of structured linear fashion like it does in a game like Dungeons and Dragons. It's very narrative. Mm-hmm. You you will often split the party in urban shadows. Yeah. You'll often be focusing on one character for an extended period of time. And you're not necessarily playing a team either. And the mechanics to the story are not based on things like fighting. They're often based on your character's emotions and background. Right. So to to kind of go back to Tom's question, your goals can be whatever you want them to be. If if you want to if you want to make a game where you are advancing the agenda of your faction or a group within your faction, you can do that. You can also make a game where you're just trying to maintain your independence from all the pressures of, you know, society of your particular, uh, you know, splat. Now, I should also say the inspiration for a lot of this game, I think, is probably Vampire, the Masquerade, which people might have heard of. The, the whole World of Darkness series. Yeah, yeah it's which very much like that. Is vampires, werewolves and mages. But I think this is for gamers that prefer non shitty systems. <sighs> It does play better than World of Darkness. Of course it plays better than World of Darkness. World of Darkness doesn't have a great system. Yeah. My second question, however, is there a win state or end game for Urban Shadows? So just like any other role-playing game, you know, your GM is going to have some sort of meta plot most of the time. Um, and if they're good, they can kind of weave together all of these individual story threads and, <clears throat> and basically have them all contribute to the end game. But as for your specific character, you can actually uh, choose to retire them. And if you retire them, the, they get like an end of game bonus. So like you're if you're playing a veteran, your veteran could give their like secret workshop full of cool gadgets and weapons to one of the other characters. And there's also a corruption mechanic, too, which is. If you if your character takes corruption advances, um, which are like kind of like level ups too much, and then they have to mark off their last one, they get retired and they will come back as a villain because they're they've just become so morally uh, either, you know, against what the, the party is against what the other characters are, or they're just all in it for themselves. Now, it should also be said that with story style games, again, I haven't played this one, but there's no way this isn't true. Oftentimes, the players generate more of the story because you don't have a set antagonist you're coming to fight. It's really depending on what your characters want to do. And characters backstab each other in that game. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, depending on your party, they could Fair be enough. they could work together. But yeah, there's definitely some backstab- backstabbing and uh, personal agendas put ahead of the group. But you're not inherently working together. So like we talked in our last podcast about don't play Batman. And Mm -hmm. one of the big things with Batman is he keeps secrets from the other party members. And that doesn't usually work. Whereas in this kind of game, you're almost encouraged. You really should. Honestly, especially if my buddies are vampires. Okay. So the third game we're going to talk about today is fate. Tom, what would you like to tell us about Fate? Because this is a game you like that has not always landed with this group, but I know I've seen it played well. It's one of those things where I've never quite gotten it right before. I'm determined I'm going to get it right one of these times. (laughs) But the basics of Fate is it's 
at its heart, in many ways, a very traditional RPG. The GM sets the difficulty of what you're trying to do. You roll the dice, which are these silly plus minus zero dice. So you, they're proprietary dice that basically create a very narrow range of outcomes. And, um, you know, you're looking to meet or beat the difficulty of the task. And what is the genre for fate? Well, that's the thing. Fate is very much a toolkit kind of game, which means that it doesn't really have a genre set up into it. However, if I were to describe the default fate game, it is a pulpy action adventure game. The mechanics, the way they function, will assume that the players will succeed. Okay. And what sort of makes Fate different from the other games that we've played? The big thing about Fate that I think sets it apart from other role-playing games is the use of aspects, which are words and phrases that are used to describe everything. So the way that works is aspects are always true. An aspect is basically just a fact about the world. So if you're an elven wizard, you're always an elven wizard. Duh. But the way that works is you have special abilities related to being an elven wizard. And this is generally just something that is reached upon by a table consensus. What does an elven wizard look like in the game? Sure. So give me an example of what we would agree that looked like. I think I have a good example of that. Like, so an elven wizard, right? Mm -hmm. That aspect is always true, but it's not always applicable to the situation or task at hand. So if your character is an elven wizard, and you come across some elven ruins, you could then, what's called, right, tag that aspect of your character and be like, oh, I'm an elven wizard. Elven wizards would know something about elven ruins, so I'm going to tag my aspect and get a bonus to my role. Is that uh, correct? It honestly depends. Like I said, Fate is a toolkit, and it does a terrible job, like most story games, of explaining its rules. So there are a <laughs> billion different ways of adjudicating various things. In the case of being an elven wizard and locating elven ruins, the GM might simply say, oh yeah, you know that these elven ruins are a thousand years old and there was an ancient evil fey queen that was imprisoned beneath them. You just know it. Otherwise, if you were trying to discover something about that, he might call for a roll at which point you could do what's called invoking the aspect. In the case of invoking the aspect, you might make the roll and then spend a fate point to say, hey, I'm an elven wizard. I would naturally be good at this. So you can either then re-roll the dice or take a plus two on your roll. And this is where fate honestly loses me as a player. Same. But I think for different reasons. Okay, yeah, let's find out. I'm good at BSing things, so I'm basically always going to find some BS excuse that one of my traits applies. And that's, so you're going to try and rules lawyer it, basically. But it's not even rules lawyering, it's kind of power gaming. So if I'm going to make a character for a game like Fate, I'm going to make something like a pyromancer. And you're going to say, all right, well, how are you going to get over this cliff? Uh, I'm a pyromancer. I'm going to make jets of fire. Uh, oh, okay. Ah, I'm a pyromancer. I'm going to cauterize that wound to heal with pyromancy. Uh, yes, I'm a pyromancer. I'm going to uh, unlock the gate by uh, melting the lock. So 
some of that is encouraged, but it becomes too much like, I've got my trait. How do I just BS this into how, the situation? How do I get the most generic and most applicable trait I can and, and just use it all the time? It's not even on purpose, but if I can see a way that my trait's going to fit into the situation, I'm going to use that trait. So this is definitely a potential pitfall of the system in the way that you know, if you make a weak character in D&D on accident, that is a pitfall. The way to handle that is to decide what a pyromancer is capable of. How much pyromancy are you? Are we talking like an Avatar The Last Airbender Firebender? Are you a Warhammer uh, Red Wizard? And in fact, in those cases, I would, as GM, assuming we have the same consumption of pyromancy, I would allow you to do so, but you would still have to probably make a roll. The benefit of being a fire wizard and being able to cauterize wounds is that you don't have to use a hot brand. You can simply generate the heat from your hand using a spell, but that doesn't mean you can automatically heal a wound with it. But the problem I run into with this is, and this happens with a lot of story games, but I feel like this game is always used for D&D games. And when I'm playing a D&D game, I'm generally to some extent power gaming, which is not to say I'm going to try to build this super optimized broken ass character, but I'm going to use the resources at my disposal to the best that I can, and I almost feel like creative people have too much of an edge when they play Fate. And Fate Accelerated was twice as bad, which is like, in Fate Accelerated, you have a handful of like approaches, which are like ways your character can do things. Cautiously or recklessly or... Yeah, and so I find myself, instead of trying to do things as my character would, I find myself trying to do things in the way that gives me the big bonus, and maybe some of that's on me, but it seems to support power gaming in a way that I don't enjoy mixing with story gaming. I would agree with this to some extent. I believe the actual design intent is to allow power gamers to power game their the story elements of the game so they get a bonus for it while allowing these more story-oriented players the option to use relatively simple mechanics. So my my gripe with God, the game. I didn't trash your shitty systems. Yeah, fuck you, Dread. You're not <laughs> you're not fun for anything more than one session and everybody dies anyway. And fuck you, Urban Shadows. You're a bunch of like fucking fairies faffing about trying to fight off vampires. <laughs> fuck off. Now we should note that the next game I'm going to cover is Tom's least favorite role playing game. So so you can fuck off because you're about to criticize the fuck out of my shit. All right, All right I'll, be, go I'll be quick as I continue to stab fate. So my my gripe with fate is every aspect in the game. So aspects can also be like uh, conditions, right? Like being prone is an aspect. If, if as long if I'm remembering correctly, it's been a while since I played. But like being prone is an aspect. Being poisoned is an aspect or like water spilling on the floor is like a scene aspect if i'm or correct right urine in the case of our one game i absolutely <laughs> made a guy pee himself over the um, floor but so these aspects can be tagged or invoked or whatever it's called 
by the GM against the players and and vice versa. Like if an enemy is prone, you can invoke that, that aspect, that condition on them against them. And what it does is it boils down literally everything in the game to either a bonus or a diary roll. There's no diversity in any of the conditions or any of the things. Cause like a pyromancer, like you were saying, does something and imposes like a burned condition. Mm-hmm. Mechanically, it's precisely the same thing as if a fighter came in yeah. and tripped them. Absolutely. But you are correct, Jake. Jacob is absolutely correct. So what do you love so much about it? Or, or how have you seen it done that you're like, oh, this is fantastic. So one of the things that I appreciate about Fate is that it's a... To return to what you said earlier about basically being trying to narratively justify everything. Sure. Fate is a game of words and phrases that provides a framework for running the game. I think fate, because it is so open to customization, demands additional crunchy mechanics added to it that are not present in the base basic game. It's something that I like the idea of aspects. I like the idea of fate points. And one of the things that we haven't touched on yet is the idea that fate points can be used to uh, either declare a story detail, mm-hmm. which is where you say, let's return to the elven ruins. You're saying, hey, I bet there's a tablet written in elvish buried under these rocks. And you pay a fate point and the assuming everyone's cool with it you find it and maybe you discover some more information so as a story game it's a little more narrated by the players versus dungeons and dragons where the game master comes up with everything that is correct i would say the game authority is more evenly distributed between players and gms though it is at its heart still a game that relies on a game master to conduct things fair enough I also want to touch on the idea of compels that I really like. So with a compel, this is when an aspect works against you in a certain way and you receive a fate point in compensation. So what happens in maybe like a traditional role-playing game is the GM's like, hey, thief, You see treasure over there. You have to make a saving throw or you're going to try to grab it, which I think is shitty jamming. But in Fate, what the GM would say is, hey, thief, you've got that eye for glittering gold on your character sheet. You notice a glint of treasure there. How would you feel about uh, sneaking off from the party to go get into it? And it's assumed, of course, you're going to get in trouble, but you get a Fate point. In compensation. I see. So what you like is uh, the the GM puts some devil's bargains out for the players. Absolutely. It takes some of the sting away from doing something that is self-destructive. And the player, it's not even something the GM necessarily has to do. The players can do it themselves. Now, mm-hmm. I will say in defense of fate, fate is a very storyteller heavy game or very storytelling heavy game and we have a very beer and pretzels gaming group so our gaming group at the time that we played fate was very much show up you know bust down the dungeon door kill some monsters tell some jokes drink a lot and go home it's it really was not filled with like 
method actor role players. Incidentally, also the reason that we've not played Urban Shadows together. <laughs> I have asked you to run Urban Shadows for us, just not with the people we were playing with. <laughs> and one of the things is fate can be played very much more of a traditional RPG or more of a story gaming RPG. Mm -hmm. It's going to depend on the individual group based on how much authority the GM asserts. Frankly, if I ever run it again, and I will someday, it will be a much stronger GM heavy game Mm -hmm. versus the sort of shared storyboarding thing. Yeah. And Jacob, you were about to say something earlier. What else were you going to? It just kind of occurred to me that fate as a storytelling game, because of the way it's constructed, it almost seems like it is a storytelling game for either newer players of role-playing games to provide them a framework with which to kind of delve deeper into the shared world building Mm. type of stuff or, um, a framework for people who aren't used to that style of game. It basically like a new gaming group. Mm -hmm. So if, if you have a a group that has played together for years and everyone trusts each other and, um, trusts the GM and the direction that they can take the game, you don't need all the framework of aspects or fate points or anything like that. Like you can do that type of thing without any rules behind it in any role-playing game. And it seems like fate is kind of a a framework for a beginning into that kind of role-playing. Absolutely. What I've said before, and I'm going to write a whole article on this on why I love to hate fate is that fate codifies literally everything that a good GM and a good group does. The good GM will consider circumstances and basically mentally apply the equivalent of aspects, applying situational bonuses and penalties and things like that. But fate just basically codifies it into a mechanical framework for those individuals. And I would argue that if you're wanting to get into story gaming, you are actually better off with the next game that we're going to cover, which is Fiasco. Fiasco is a role-playing game about things going wrong in the vein of a Coen Brothers movie or some of the Tarantino movies. It is played without a game master and it is more or less a collection of scenes so each player at the table generates a need or a relationship or an object that they sort of share with another player to their right and left each player goes around has a couple rounds of scenes you roll the dice to generate whatever situation causes whatever happens You roll the dice to see whatever happens that fucks everything up. Then you have another couple of collection of scenes. And then you have sort of the ending montage where usually people get really fucked. Each each game of Fiasco is kind of a self-contained thing. And there are tons of Fiasco scenarios, which Mm -hmm. basically like lays out the framework like this is Fargo. You are you are playing the equivalent of the movie Fargo. Yeah. Or you are playing. What's another example? Of we one? did one that was called Tales of Suburbia. That was kind of like uh, Desperate Housewives, yeah. except really fucked up. So so the, your scenario will lay that out. 
Um, and then you roll a bunch of dice and that will kind of determine like, this is how many objects this is how many needs, yeah. etc. And throughout your scenes, you're basically collecting these now, dice for your, yourself and your character. Yes. Now it should be noted. This game doesn't actually have like a character sheet or traits. This game is as much about doing improv theater with your friends as it is anything else. In fact, because in fact, I argue that it's not even really a game. Yes, in most games there are actually mechanics and rules for winning or losing. That's that's very true, but that's not to say it's not fun. There are mechanics for winning or losing fiasco. You use the dice to generate what objects and relationships are there and the tilt, which is when everything goes wrong. But yes, you don't really power your way through fiasco. Uh, like you would Dungeons and Dragons. You're not trying to win per se. You're just sort of generating a story with your friends. Yeah, uh, and honestly, uh, if at the end of the game, you, you look at all the dice you've collected. And basically, if you have more uh, good dice than bad dice, you'll get a good outcome, which is quite rare. Or if you have more bad dice than good dice, you'll get a bad outcome. And no, that how, is not how, correct. How bad it is no. is depending. So... You're close. Actually, oh, yeah. balancing your dice out is bad. Is the worst outcome. Yeah, yes, you're, balancing you're a balance roll between your dice is the worst outcome, and then having a ton of good or a ton of bad outcomes is actually what gives you a good or bad montage. Yeah. Go ahead, dear. Talk about how much you hate fiasco. It it's just if it doesn't have armor class and hit points, it's not really a game, now is it? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> says well wait 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 you like dread yes obviously i'm just giving you shit Arsler. yeah you're being a bitch yeah but tom does not like fiasco talk a little bit about why you don't like fiasco it it just has no real mechanics so for me it's just sort of a wanky little improv theater thing which i i don't enjoy i i need something with a little bit of meat to it to to actually want to play a game says the guy that likes fate Fate is a medium crunch system. Fate is not a medium crunch system. Fate yeah. is so fluffy. But yeah, so if, if you have if you have players who are maybe a little less competitive, um, a little less interested in like tactics and optimizing things, or if you have a bunch of theater friends, they'd probably love Fiasco. Absolutely. And I think Fiasco is a great game to play if you want to introduce people to the concept of role-playing like talking as your character because there's just enough mechanic there to give people the framework to generate some really interesting scenarios i know when we played tales of suburbia i'm not big on like telling my gaming stories but shit got really fucking weird there was like mary Kay filled with coke and like a some statutory rape and STDs. It got real dark real fast. All right. The fifth game we're going to talk about today, which we're saving the best for last. Drum roll, please. Savage Worlds. Savage Worlds is actually everybody at this table's favorite role playing game. We actually debated making the Helpful NPCs podcast about Savage Worlds. And honestly, the big reason that we did not is that I don't think it has the popularity necessary to justify a podcast. So, Sadly, no. I know. It's so good. 
Savage Worlds is what we call a lightly crunchy game. So to introduce that idea, crunch is the idea of mechanics like armor class that Tom talked about or your skills on your sheet. Those are things that are crunchy. How many numbers do you have to keep track of and how much math is involved? It's yes. generally a good indication of crunch. And Savage Worlds is definitely a crunchy game in the sense that you have a character sheet, you have abilities, you aren't BSing it with story elements, but it's very, very toned down from games like Dungeons and Dragons. And Savage Worlds is sort of a generic system. So by a generic system, we mean you can fit it to any genre you want. It, when I say sort of, I mean Savage Worlds is action-adventure by default. And when you try to turn it into other things, it only sort of works. But as an action-adventure game, Savage Worlds is fucking fantastic. So you can do urban fantasy in Savage Worlds. It just has to be action-adventure urban fantasy. Yeah, it's you, urban fantasy with car chases and gunfights. It's You not, can do horror, but it needs to be action horror. So if you're going to do your Twilight game, you need to make the <laughs> baseball scene a lot long to make it a Savage Worlds game. So Savage Worlds operates with math that's a little bit simpler than D&D. The general premise is you're rolling a die when you attempt to perform a task that ranges from a four-sided die to a 12-sided die. Four is a success. Eight or higher is a, an extreme success or a raise. Mm -hmm. Yep. And the more raises you get or the more increments past the more increments of four you get past your initial success, uh, the more success you have. Now, anytime you roll a die in Savage Worlds and we're not big on talking about the mechanics, but I think it's important here. You roll the highest face on the die. It, quote, explodes, which means you roll it again and add it to the results. So if you're rolling two 12-sided dice, or if you roll a 12-sided die, get a 12, and add another 12-sided die to it, you can get massive successes by getting a handful of raises. And so the idea is, with Savage Worlds, your characters can get these massive, explosive, satisfying successes. Your D4 is like your lowest level, and D12 is generally the highest. So as you increase the, the number of faces on the tie, your chance of exploding goes down but your average roll increases so it makes you more consistent now savage worlds rather than having a series of spells or a book of spells similar to dungeons and dragons might have one power that explodes in a burst and then you're figuring out how to fluff it with all the different powers involved so it's very much like a it's power system rather than like a DD spell system is a very toned down kind of game now, the thing that I like most about Savage Worlds is its overall excellent design. It really hits the light enough mechanics to mostly get out of the way with enough crunch to be satisfying. Savage Worlds does run into some of the issues that a lot of traditional role-playing games designed in the early 2000s had. However... The system is ultimately designed for one specific purpose, and that is running mass battles with tons of dudes on it, shooting and swinging swords at each other, and it does that amazingly. 
The tagline for Pinnacle Entertainment, which is the company that makes Savage Worlds, is fast, furious, fun. And Savage Worlds absolutely gets you through fast, explosive, easy to understand combat. Mm -hmm. Um, It's got a skill system that is generally very flexible, very easy to use. I think the game was really big, like. 10 years ago i think was when it was really big i know they had a when kickstarter the recently edition came out it had a surge of popularity yeah absolutely and in fact we found out through our local uh gaming group but i would say we have played that the most of any game we've played over the years by a pretty wide margin yes and i have a big mechanics boner for games that are designed in such a way to accomplish their specific task at hand Savage Worlds is fantastically designed to make the player characters feel like big, heroic, pulp action heroes. damn heroes. Oh, you beat me to it. And it's surprisingly flexible in what you can do with it. So when I first saw... Huh? (laughs) So when I first saw the system... I thought the character creation was going to be far too simple. And I was shocked by the actual depth that the system has versus how few numbers are on your sheet. Like they just really pared it down to just enough crunch to be satisfying and to keep your game running. Yes. For an extremely long time, we avoided the system because the name Savage World is honestly terrible and it's not good it is not good and we like took a look at the system before and it was like this is no i'm not that interested in this why couldn't i just play pathfinder which oh my god i'm dating myself here but never again will we be playing pathfinder first edition and (laughs) so anyway after a disastrous riffs game it was like why don't why the hell don't we give this system a shot there's some idiot in the group who keeps talking about how great it is wow (laughs) poor eric and from a gm perspective savage worlds is extremely flexible too we've run all kinds of shit with that we've run lovecraftian westerns with it Mm -hmm. we've run post-apocalyptic westerns with it post-apocalyptic lovecraftian westerns with it uh jacob ran a modern mage game i ran a modern mage game jacob ran a space fantasy game i ran a planescape game in savage worlds and my absolute favorite game that i've ever run and had the most fun running and will return to it in a heartbeat is when i converted the original D&D module the caves of chaos to savage worlds oh man that was probably my favorite game that session was fantastic and everyone got killed by a purple worm except my character because he ran away yep i got eaten poor moonflower i got eaten trying to defend poor moonflower the elf princess now there are just a couple things that i would say negatively about savage worlds the first thing is When you are fighting big, strong, super tough monsters, it can feel very whiffy where you're just whiffing over and over again. And the reason for that is Savage Worlds doesn't have like a hit pool like Dungeons and Dragons does. So you have to hit the monster and then exceed the monster's toughness to do a wound. It only takes a few wounds for most things to die and extras just die after one wound. 
extras, by the way, are the standard NPC that mm-hmm. you will encounter in mass. They're goons. They're putties. They're whatever the fuck the aliens were from Avengers. Bad CGI? <laughs> yeah, it kind of depends on what the game is. Now, the reason that it can feel very whiffy is <clears throat> if you fail to hit a big monster's toughness over and over again, you're just failing to do stuff to it. Yeah, you don't You don't even do a single hit point of damage yeah, to it. Yeah, I've like, honestly nothing. had to just BS monsters to death a couple times, um, which was very obvious, but it was all right. It was very early on, and I kind of figured out how the rules work a little bit better since then. The flip side to that is... Because of the exploding dice we talked about, your character can have a super success and one shot whatever monster you are fighting. So, yep, you can build up to fighting the dragon and you can one shot it. Yes. So it's one of those things where the mechanics falter, but the way they are designed minimizes the chance of that happening. Now, I'm going to defend the one-shotting the dragon thing. If it happens, play it for laughs. So 100% do the Indiana Jones versus the swordsman bit where you shockingly one-shot the dragon. It can be funny and awesome to do that, too. Well, Bard one-shot the smog with that giant arrow. Smog. Smog. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's nothing wrong with doing that. Another element, and this is really more singing the praise of D&D versus Savage Worlds. And this specifically came up when you ran that great keep on the Borderlands game. And that is Savage Worlds doesn't have any sort of economy to it. That is to say, because the game is super open ended and meant to support a variety of genres, you have things like a laser sword costs a hundred bucks. Well, that's because laser swords only exist if you're running a campaign with laser swords and then they cost a hundred dollars. It doesn't have that built-in sense of progression and economy that Dungeons and Dragons does. So in a Dungeons and Dragons game, when I get a hundred gold pieces, that feels like and means something. That you're that much closer to buying that magic item you want. Yes, or that much closer to buying a keep or you can live that much better when you get to town. It does have that inborn sense of economy and progression that Savage Worlds does not. Those are really the only things I'll say negatively against Savage Worlds because it's absolutely our choice for basically every game we play. I do have one more thing about Savage Worlds no, that is okay. a negative. Two criticisms only. With newer players, they're, so Savage Worlds, the basic mechanics are, are quite simple, but they're in combat especially. There are a number of special maneuvers that you can do Mm. and honestly you have to do in order to be combat effective so there's aiming there's wild attacking there's defense there's holding your action there's a lot of stuff that is not super obvious at the outset it's not written anywhere in your character sheet it's not a special ability you get from taking a certain uh edge which are like their version of feats it's in the rule book so you have to print out a cheat sheet if you're a new player in order to remember what to do. And it's also not clear immediately what is good to do when. That is a fair criticism. Um, We actually normally print out cheat sheets so that people have an idea of what they can do. But I would say it's much easier to figure that out than it is like a wizard in D&D or a warlock. So I think that's going to draw us to a close. 
Those are five games that you should try out. Absolutely. Those are some of our favorites, but there are hundreds of role-playing games. There are hundreds of role-playing games we've played that we haven't talked about on here. So definitely something that if you want to see a follow-up, let us know. Thank you for listening to the Helpful NPCs podcast. For more content, check us out at HelpfulNPCs.com. If you have any feedback or requests for topics, you can reach us at info at helpfulnpcs.com. 